Trump likely stays on the ballot. That seems to be the consensus after the Supreme Court yesterday heard oral arguments on whether the Colorado Supreme Court has the right to scrub Trump from the ballot. It looks like our Supreme Court is going to keep Donald Trump on the ballot. That seems to be the, the consensus. We can't get rid of him, can't scrub him off the ballot. Trump is the stain that we're stuck with. It's earnings season. I'll have more about the Supreme Court oral arguments later on in this episode. It's earnings season on Wall Street. Uber posted its quarterly results, and for the first time in the company's 15-year history, it turned a profit. The Financial Times reports that in nearly 15 years, Uber lost $30 billion. A bottomless cup of money from angel investors willing to keep pouring cash into the so-called ride-sharing business until every local taxicab business either went out of business or took a massive cut in earnings. This same bottomless pot of money is how Amazon also went years without a profit while decimating Main Street. I want this to sink in. Uber became a household name while obliterating the limousine and the taxi businesses, even though Uber for 15 years was never profitable. For 15 years, Wall Street investors poured billions into this company until older successful business models succumbed. They were powerless. They couldn't compete. This is not capitalism. Don't tell me Uber is successful because it gave the consumer what it wanted. Uber was never a success. For 15 years, it never made money. It just had a fire hose of cash to blow through until consumers had no choice but to start using it. This is the mop-up for February 9th, 2024. I'm David Feldman in New York City. Thank you for finding me. Please like and share this episode so I remain in your feed. Please subscribe to my newsletter and, of course, this channel. Tucker Carlson, the disgraced former news host from Fox, who traffics in Racist conspiracy theories promoting authoritarian leaders like Hungary's Viktor Orban spent two hours with the guy he's been rooting for ever since Ukraine was invaded by Vladimir Putin. And that guy, Tucker Carlson, is rooting for is Vladimir Putin. That's who Vladimir, that's who Tucker Carlson spent time with, Vladimir Putin. Carlson has never hidden the fact that he was rooting against Ukraine and for Putin because to the far right in this country, Putin is Europe's great white Christian hope, oppressing ethnic minorities, destroying democracy, and deflecting blame for all his failures onto history's most reliable scapegoat, the LGBTQ community. Tucker Carlson began last night's interview by pointing out 
that not a single Western journalist has bothered to interview Mr. Putin since 2022, and they still haven't. Tucker Carlson is not a journalist. He's an unprincipled, sycophantic hack whose desperate need for eyeballs has turned him into a low-rent knockoff of Jerry Springer. Eventually, I don't know if you saw the interview, but eventually an exasperated Putin turned to Carlson and asked if the host had any intention of conducting a serious conversation, at which point I almost forgave Putin for the invasion of Ukraine. Almost. Putin defended the invasion by insisting President Zelensky of Ukraine, who is a Jew, has formed a government filled with Nazis, which can't possibly be true because Tucker Carlson is rooting against Zelensky. If it were filled with Nazis, Tucker Carlson would be on the side of Ukraine. Then Putin insisted he never invaded Ukraine. He actually said that. Despite everything we've seen on television, the millions of refugees pouring into Eastern Europe, Putin said it wasn't an invasion. He's a Republican. Yes, uh, yes, he is. He's a Republican. It wasn't an invasion. What was it? What was it? It was like January 6th, right? The Russians are just tourists who got a little carried away by all the excitement of being in a strange land. Since leaving Fox News, Tucker Carlson has started the Tucker Carlson Network. His most recent high-profile interviews have been with Andrew Tate, Russell Brand, and Donald Trump. That's a lot of rape. Tate, Brand, and Trump. Good on you, Tucker Carlson, because, you know, when it comes to rape, it's so important to only hear from the accused or in Trump's case, the found guilty. Department of Justice Special Counsel Robert Hur, looking into Joe Biden's handling of classified documents after leaving the White House as vice president. Department of Justice Special Counsel Robert Hur announced on Thursday he won't be pressing charges. Now, Washington is lousy with documents marked classified because the people in charge of the agencies want to keep secret how incompetent they are. Rarely is a document marked top secret because it's protecting an overseas asset. It's about protecting generals and cabinet officials who don't know what they're doing, which is why a lot of ex-presidents and ex-vice presidents, when they have their staff pack up their belongings, they end up accidentally taking classified documents home with them. It's an honest mistake. Vice President Mike Pence did it, and so did Vice President Joe Biden. And when they get a call from the National Archives and are told, hey, you're holding on to some stuff that doesn't belong to you, Pence and Biden said, oh, I'm sorry, let me go find it. And you know what they do? They turn it over. No harm. But Donald Trump, he refused to turn over boxes and boxes of documents marked classified that he took with him back to Mar-a-Lago after he left the White House. When the National Archives kept asking 
Donald Trump for those boxes, he wouldn't turn them over. So the FBI had to get a warrant to search Mar-a-Lago, and they found boxes and boxes of classified documents out in the open, inside one of the bathrooms at Mar-a-Lago or on the stage of a ballroom. We have since learned that Donald Trump would travel with his boxes and bring them up to his Bedminster, New Jersey golf club, where he was caught on tape showing classified war plans against Iran. He showed these plans, it's on tape, showed them to two writers and a couple of Trump flunkies, some hanger-ons. That's why Donald Trump got indicted for violating the Espionage Act. Let's <laughs> never forget that one of the, of the four criminal trials he faces this year one, one of them is for violating the Espionage Act. Okay, now, it's perfectly fine to accidentally take classified documents. It's not okay to hide them from the FBI when they're searching your home for them. It's also not okay to show strangers invasions invasion plans for Iraq while saying, and I quote, you know, we shouldn't be looking at this. Uh, it's classified. You're not allowed to see this. But now, but now I guess it's too late. It's on tape. Donald Trump waving war plans in front of complete strangers. Okay. But because Donald Trump and Republicans play the game of what about the Justice Department under Merrick Garland had to open up an investigation into Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. Joe bought somebody packed up the vice president's office, put some boxes in his garage in Delaware. Joe didn't know what he had there. And it's a false equivalency the same way. Mike Pence accidentally took these documents home. They're inconsequential. Everything is marked classified in Washington. But to be fair and to show that the Justice Department isn't prejudicial, they launched an investigation into Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. Trump flagrantly disobeyed the FBI. Didn't hand them over. Pence, uh, uh, Biden, I think Obama. You, I'm sorry, here, have them. Not, not Trump. And now the special counsel says he's not going to prosecute Joe Biden because he didn't commit a crime. He didn't hold on to the documents. But like James Comey clearing Hillary in 2016, this special counsel had to put a gratuitous dig into our Democratic candidate by saying it would be hard to find a jury willing to convict Joe Biden because he's way too sympathetic. He comes across, said the prosecutor, as an elderly man with a poor memory. Either indict him or don't. This is what Comey did. 
Either indict Hillary or don't. Shut your pie hole. In the 345-page report, the special counsel wrote, quote, At trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory. Exactly. Now, Republicans will spin this whatever they, whatever they, whatever way they want. But it's not just the jury. Voters in November are also going to find Joe Biden sympathetic, well-meaning, and an elderly man with a poor memory, just like Reagan in 1984, who got himself reelected by a landslide. Here's how it's going to play out. Biden is going to get reelected, and everyone is going to make jokes about his lousy memory and his constant gaffes and confusion, just like they did with Ronald Reagan. And because we all have grandparents and welcome their wisdom, even if it's a little slow, we will forgive Joe Biden's missteps because he's doing an amazing job. He is. The economy is growing and while Gaza and Ukraine are beyond words. America, despite what the Republicans are claiming now, America, I hate to break it to you, is not at war. It's funding war. And yes, some of our soldiers have just died in the Middle East, but we are not at war. We're profiting off war by selling weapons to people who are at war, but we are not at war. Biden is going to get reelected. And those four years when he's serving his second term will be a continental drift. It will be slow and quiet. Donald Trump will go to prison and we'll just drift and drift and things will be calm until the polar ice caps completely melt by oh let's say 2027 and we all drown that's the way this plays out get over it he's got a bad memory get over it joe biden has a michigan problem the devastation in gaza is unforgivable. And so is Joe Biden's embrace of Benjamin Netanyahu, whose ultra-right-wing ethno-nationalist government is waging total war on the Palestinian people. Biden warned him against a ground invasion, while at the same time promised more weapons for Israel, insisting they have a right to defend themselves. Now, unlike the first President Bush and his Secretary of State James Baker, who wanted to cut off Israel entirely, and so they came to the bargaining table on a two-state solution, Biden has always, going back to his days in the Senate, has always been strong on Israel, soft on the Palestinians. He never pushed too hard for a two-state solution. But now he's pushing for a two-state solution 
when it's too late. Benjamin Netanyahu announced last month what we all knew about this pig, that Benjamin Netanyahu said that as long as he's Israel's prime minister, there will never be a sovereign nation for the Palestinians. He finally said it out loud for the world to hear. He said, sovereignty for the Palestinians is out of the question as long as I'm prime minister. Well, Biden responded by imposing economic sanctions on Israeli settlers inside the West Bank for their acts of terror against the Palestinian people. Netanyahu's asymmetrical response to October 7th has been unprecedented in Israel history, in Israeli history. Now, whether you agree with Netanyahu or you agree with most of the world community, which is calling his response to October 7th, they're calling it ethnic cleansing, you can disagree. But one thing is certain, and that is if Joe Biden loses in November, it will be because of Gaza. Biden doesn't win without young voters who are less concerned about Trump and more concerned about the plight of the Palestinians and, of course, climate change. Young people don't frighten easily. They know Trump is bad, but he doesn't scare them the same way he scares their parents. Young people also don't think Biden should be rewarded for sticking with Netanyahu. Now, I'm not talking morality or ethics. I'm talking politics. But it's important to remember politics is the manifestation of morality and ethics. Politics is how we as a people define our ethics and our morality. So I don't have a problem with talking about the political ramifications of Gaza. It's not tasteless. The devastation of Gaza is bad politics. Michigan has a large Arab American population who voted for Biden in 2020 because Donald Trump is an inveterate Islamophobe who wants to ban Arabs and Muslims from entering this country. But now there is a general sense that there is nothing, nothing Biden could ever do to win back the Arab American community because of Gaza. They won't vote for Trump, but they're going to stay home on election day. That seems to be the message. Now, more than 2% of Michigan's population is Arab American. Biden knows this. On Thursday, he had his sharpest rebuke ever for Benjamin Netanyahu. Biden said, quote, the conduct of the response in Gaza has been over the top. He went on to say, I'm pushing very hard now to deal with this hostage ceasefire. I've been working tirelessly on this deal because I think if we can get the delay, the initial delay, I think we would be able to extend that 
so that we could increase the prospect that this fighting in Gaza changes. We can increase the prospect that this fighting in Gaza changes. He didn't say stops. He says the fighting changes. How Netanyahu wages war. He didn't say the fighting in Gaza stops. He says the fighting in Gaza changes. You know, for an 80-year-old who's being called senile by that special counsel in the classified materials investigation, Biden is pretty adept at parsing words. Now, again, why is he issuing this stern rebuke of Benjamin Netanyahu? Politics. I know it's tasteless to discuss the politics surrounding the situation, the devastation in Gaza. But I hate to break it to you. Everything is politics. The only solution is politics. In Gaza, in the West Bank, in Israel, and here in America, the only solution is politics. Eventually, Hamas has to present itself as a political party, the same way the PLO created Fatah and became a political party. Everything is politics. And when people protest, when they threaten to withhold their vote, the people in power in a democratic republic like ours, they react. When you withhold your vote, politicians panic. Now, Biden needs to win Michigan. He's scared. So I don't feel guilty talking about the politics of Gaza. Everything is political. Biden wants to survive. The Palestinians also want to survive. It's different type of survival, obviously, but it's the way of the world. Everything is politics. Joe Biden needs to get reelected. I've been over this before. Joe Biden won five states that Hillary didn't. So he, uh, the electoral map is pretty easy for him. There are three states Biden needs to win, and then he gets to 270. And those three states are Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Hillary didn't win those three states. Now, Pennsylvania is a lock. Michigan should have been a lock for Joe Biden, but now it's no longer a lock because of the situation in Gaza. The third state, Wisconsin, was always iffiest of those three states. And as I've pointed out, Biden can lose Wisconsin, but he has to then win either Arizona or Georgia. Those are the other two states he won that Hillary didn't. So if he loses Wisconsin, he's got to pick up Arizona or Georgia. Now, the problem for Joe Biden, Arizona per capita has one of the largest Arab American populations in the country. So Arizona is no longer a lock. 
And that leaves them with Georgia, which floats blue in a sea of red. So who knows how Georgia goes this year? The fact is Biden needs Michigan and he needs Arizona. And that means he needs the Arab American vote. Biden dispatched Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer and Samantha Power, Chief of the U.S. Agency for International Development. He dispatched them to Michigan on Thursday to meet with members of the Arab American community because he's leaking support. Dearborn has Michigan's highest concentration of Arab Americans. And Biden, his surrogates, met with the Democratic mayor of Dearborn. His name is Abdullah Hamoud. It is estimated that close to 30,000 Palestinians have been killed since war was declared. Some Muslim and Arab residents of Michigan launched the Abandon Biden campaign. That's what they're calling it. The Abandon Biden campaign, pledging not to vote for him in the Michigan primary. Members of the Abandon Biden coalition refused to meet with Biden's representatives yesterday. In their statement explaining why, they wrote, quote, Confronted with such egregious contempt for our lives and dignity, especially as demonstrated by the timing and context of the upcoming meeting, we categorically reject the farce of civility and diplomacy, unquote. The Supreme Court heard arguments Thursday on whether or not the Colorado Supreme Court ruled correctly when it scrubbed Donald Trump's name from the ballot, charging him with participating in an insurrection and thereby rendering him disqualified to hold elective office as stipulated by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Even though Trump led an insurrection and any other civilized nation would have already locked this monster up, I always suspected the 14th Amendment disqualification was a long shot, but well worth the effort. You stop at nothing to defeat fascism because fascists stop at nothing. And that seems to be what most legal scholars are saying this morning. They seem to agree Trump should be kicked off the ballot. But they also agree the Supreme Court would never do that. They wouldn't allow it. The justices on Thursday, according to all the reporting, seem skeptical about throwing Trump off the ballot. You can interpret how an upcoming ruling is going to land based on the questions they asked during the oral arguments. Over at Lawfare, they write that the Supreme Court justices on Thursday seem to be focused on a very narrow reading of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And judging by their questions, their ruling will most definitely be an interpretation of Section 3, as well as the power of the states to enforce it. It will probably come down to 
whether Section 3 applies to someone running for president. Section 3 specifically forbids office holders from running for office if they participate in an insurrection. And it now looks like this court is going to quibble over the semantics of whether or not the president is an office holder. I know. As Lawfare points out, the Supreme Court on Thursday steered clear of the three consequential questions in this case. And those are, was January 6th an insurrection? Did Trump participate? And were his incendiary words on the ellipse that day protected speech? In my humble opinion, the Supreme Court is too chicken shit to answer any of those three questions because we know it was an insurrection. We know Trump led it, and we know telling thousands of heavily armed supporters to go and march on the Capitol isn't protected speech. He knew they were carrying weapons, mace. And he said, I don't care. They're not going to use it on me. We all know this. So the court is most probably going to punt, keep Trump on the ballot by focusing on the wording of Section 3. That's their way out. The old cop-out. Let the voters, not the court, decide whether Trump is an insurrectionist. That's going to be the ruling. Eighth grade pablum. Let the voters decide whether Trump is an insurrection. Why are you asking us? We're just the Supreme Court. You know, for a court controlled by elitists, They sure are trusting of the mob. Meanwhile, Republicans in the House, led by Trump's bootlicks, Matt Gaetz, and the odious Elise Stefanik, who is married to a gun lobbyist, introduced a resolution co-sponsored by 60 Republicans declaring that January 6th was not an insurrection and that the states lack the authority to remove a candidate for federal office from their ballots. It's amazing. They can rule on whether or not January 6th was an insurrection, but the Supreme Court won't touch it. Elise Stefanik, who is part of the Republican leadership and auditioning for the role of Trump's running mate, told reporters, quote, as President Trump continues to dominate the polls, extremist Democrats stop at nothing to prevent Donald Trump from returning to the White House. You mean like storm the Capitol and prevent the counting of votes? Elise Stefanik is married to a gun lobbyist. That's all you need to know about Elise Stefanik, the Harvard-educated Elise Stefanik, she is married to a gun lobbyist. It looks like the court won't allow Colorado to remove Trump's name from the ballot. 
But what the court giveth to Trumpeth, it also taketh awayeth. The consensus seems to be that the court will keep Trump on the ballot, but they will uphold a lower court's ruling this week, denying Trump's claim of absolute immunity for any crime he may have committed while serving as president. On Tuesday morning, the D.C. Circuit Court upheld a lower court ruling dismissing Trump's argument that his four criminal indictments should be dismissed because presidents are immune from criminal prosecution for anything they did while serving in office. They use the term in office. But before the Supreme Court on the Section 3 disqualification, they're claiming it's not an office. The circuit court on Tuesday dismissed Trump's two primary arguments for absolute immunity. The first argument was that separations of powers prevent the judicial branch from prosecuting the executive branch. And two, that only the Senate can convict a president and twice, this is their argument, during two separate impeachment trials, the Senate failed to remove Trump from office. So Trump's attorneys argued that because Trump was already tried by the Senate for the crimes of January 6th and acquitted, putting him on trial in a D.C. courtroom would be double jeopardy. The circuit court rejected that argument, saying trials in the Senate are political, not criminal trials. As CNN pointed out, Mitch McConnell voted against convicting Trump for January 6th by saying this should be left to our courts to decide. Trump has until Monday to appeal the decision where it will land on the Supreme Court's desk. Now, the Supreme Court can refuse to hear the case, thereby making the D.C. Circuit Court's ruling stand, which means Trump doesn't have presidential immunity, or the Supreme Court could agree to take this case sometime before June when it breaks for summer recess. Most respected legal scholars predict the Supreme Court will uphold the lower court, which upheld Judge Tanya Chutkin's ruling that presidents do not have absolute immunity. Judge Chutkin is presiding over the Washington, D.C. election interference case that was supposed to start next month, but Trump's lawyers have succeeded in delaying, and it won't start until the Supreme Court rules on whether or not Trump has the divine rights of kings. Well, some words about all of this. Since Aristotle, we've known that drama is conflict. When you watch a sitcom, a movie, a procedural, it's all about conflict. And if it doesn't have conflict, it's not worth watching. Americans won't watch the news. 
unless there's drama. They won't follow politics unless there's drama. That's what they've been trained to, to want drama in their politics, in their news. And drama means conflict. Nobody's going to watch if Washington actually did the people's business by addressing climate catastrophe, homelessness, and for-profit health care, which kills hundreds of thousands of Americans each year. We've been trained to crave drama, which means there must be conflict. Republicans say this, the Democrats say that. It's always, they said, they said, conflict. And with Trump, it's exactly what the system wants. Permanent drama, permanent conflict. We follow Trump. It's like Tom and Jerry. It's a cat and mouse game where we think Trump has finally been caught. And then at the last minute, he finds a hole to escape through. And it all starts again for the next episode. Drama and conflict. That's what we are fed. We are fed a steady diet of drama and conflict. Now, that's fine for sitcoms and, you know, David E. Kelly programs. It's not good for democracy. I want you to think of your relationships and your job, what you do to make a living. Do you want drama and conflict? Or do you want to get things done? Drama and conflict in relationships or on the job are what people use to avoid the serious stuff. The older I get, the less drama and the less conflict I want. Less drama... Less conflict makes for more loving relationships and more efficiency at work. All Trump offers, all the Republican Party offers, is drama and conflict. I want to fix things. What do you want to do? You want drama and conflict? Or do you want to address homelessness, the eviction crisis, the health care crisis, and climate change? We don't need drama and conflict. It's put in front of us so we don't pay attention to what's killing us. Lying under oath costs Trump millions of dollars. Now, we've been waiting for Judge Arthur Angoran to decide how much to fine Donald Trump for overinflating the value of his properties so that he could secure favorable loans from banks and insurers. He's been found guilty. This is that civil fraud trial filed by New York State Attorney General Letitia James, who is asking for roughly $370 million in fines. Now, remember, E. Jean Carroll's attorneys, I think, asked for $25 million, but the jury <laughs> came back with $83.3 million. So 
what Letitia James asks for may be lowballing. And Judge Arthur Angoran, we're waiting for his fines, now says he needs more time because it has come to light that prosecutors believe Trump's former CFO, Alan Weisselberg, committed perjury when he testified on behalf of Donald Trump. Alan Weisselberg served as the Trump Organization's CFO for decades, going back to Trump's racist father. But then he had to leave the organization two years ago in order to serve a five-month prison sentence for tax fraud after pleading guilty to not reporting gifts of free housing and free tuition for his grandchildren, gifts given to him by the Trump Organization. Weisselberg is expected to testify on behalf of Donald Trump in next month's criminal trial, where Trump is accused of falsifying business records and violating campaign finance laws when he paid hush money to porn star Stormy Daniels during the lead-up to the 2016 presidential election. And then that money was also paid uh, to Michael Cohen in the Oval Office. Michael Cohen paid the money first, and then when Trump ended up in the Oval Office, he began cutting checks to Michael Cohen from the White House. If Weisselberg committed perjury while testifying during the civil fraud trial, that suggests Arthur and Gorin, the judge, will probably hit Trump with a fine that exceeds Letitia James's $370 million ask. And it will also make it difficult for Trump's attorneys to call Alan Weisselberg to the stand next month as a character witness for Trump. Trump is short on cash. But then again, hasn't he always been? Jose Paglieri over at the Daily Beast has been doing some great reporting on all of Trump's trials. You should read Jose Paglieri over at the Daily Beast. He's an investigative reporter. He's a great journalist. And he reports that New York law requires Trump. This is really getting delicious. Uh, New York law requires Trump to pony up immediately whatever fine is handed down by Judge Arthur Angoran in the New York State civil fraud trial. Trump will be required to hand the fine over cash to the state of New York or will be held as he appeals the decisions. The fine could be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Letitia James is asking for, what, 275 Who knows what Judge Angoran is going to come up with. Plus, Donald Trump has to hand over $83.3 million in the E. Jean Carroll judgment. Again, the money won't go directly to E. Jean Carroll. It will be held by the state of New York pending appeal. That's how it works in New York. You get slapped with a $375 million fine. 
You're free to appeal, but you have to pony up the money. Now, we will hold on to it. And if you lose on appeal, you can have it back. So, where, oh, where is Donald Trump going to find several hundred million dollars? Jose Paglieri at the Daily Beast reports that Trump testified in his deposition that he gave before the New York State Attorney General in the civil fraud trial, which he has already lost. He testified in his deposition that he had $400 million in cash. Jose Paglieri expressed incredulity about that number. Kind of hinted, I don't think he's got $400 million. You know, most people agree the guy found guilty of inflating his assets also lied about his liquidity. Pagliari over at the Daily Beast said that if you add up $83.3 million for E. Jean Carroll and at the very least $375 million in civil penalties for the fraud, that exceeds his imaginary $400 million. Pagliari says Trump most likely will try to put up a bond. But, having just been found guilty of inflating his assets to secure favorable loans, is going to make Donald Trump a pretty bad candidate for a favorable interest rate on those bonds. Jose Paglieri, over at the Daily Beast, estimates that if Angoran, Judge Angoran, finds Trump $370 million. New York State law demands that Trump be forced to pay 9% interest on that fine, dating all the way back to when the New York State Attorney General first began her investigation for years ago, and it's compounded interest, okay? So, Jose Pagliari over at the Daily Beast says, Trump gets fined $370 million by Judge Angoran, and that's lowballing. That's just what Letitia James wants, 370 375 With Weisselberg possibly being guilty of perjury, who knows what Angoran is going to tack on? So, but let's say $370 million. Uh, because of New York State law saying 9% interest on the fine going back to when the investigation first began, what does that come to? Well, Pagliari says with the compound interest, four years of 9%, it comes on a $370 million judgment. It would come to somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, $550, $560 million. It's $370 million, that's the fine, supposedly, plus four years at 9% compounded interest. Ain't life grand? Isn't that great? Which means 
Donald Trump, even if he does have 400 million, he's got to borrow close to $600 million just to pony up the fine while he waits for appeal. And he's going to have to get a bond at a bad interest rate. He's a risk. So that means even more interest payments on the interest payments. And here is the $30 million question. What does he have as collateral? Mar-a-Lago. It's worth $30 million tops. Now, I get a lot of angry letters from Trump supporters who say I'm stupid. They call me stupid for not understanding that Mar-a-Lago is worth half a billion dollars. Trump supporters, they, they, they know all about Palm Beach real estate, and they say it's worth half a billion dollars. It is worth $30 million tops. Now, Trump says he can get half a billion dollars. He also said he didn't rape E. Jean Carroll. Now, I want you Trump supporters to think. Now, that's called thinking is when you use your, the brain, the, the, the cheese between your ears. I want you to try to think, Trump supporters, okay? Knowing that Trump has declared bankruptcy at least six times, that's a fact, and that he's known for paying his creditors back pennies on the dollar. Would you loan him money using Mar-a-Lago as collateral? If he came to you and said, lend me some money, lend me hundreds of millions of dollars, I'll I'll put up Mar-a-Lago as collateral. Do you honestly believe a bank or any lender is prepared to take Mar-a-Lago in lieu of payment. Like he defaults on the loan and we'll take Mar-a-Lago. Do you honestly believe that any lender would take Mar-a-Lago as collateral? Uh, Now, you want to believe that Donald Trump is correct when he says Mar-a-Lago is worth $500 billion. Uh, You're stupid. There's no other way to explain this to Trump supporters. You're illiterate and willfully ignorant. I want you to activate the cheese between your ears and and try to spark some thinking. Those two neurons you have between your ears... Do you honestly believe that Palm Beach, Florida, would ever allow Mar-a-Lago to be subdivided and turned into a housing development so that Trump or the person he sold Mar-a-Lago to could cash out with half a billion dollars? Okay? Trump's surrogates and Donald Trump himself claim that he could tear down Mar-a-Lago and build a couple of McMansions and he'd pocket half a billion dollars. 
Do you have any idea how many tax breaks Trump has gotten over the years from Palm Beach because Mar-a-Lago is listed as an historic preservation site? Okay, it's like he bought Grant's tomb in, in New York City. And you could say, well, it's a prime piece of real estate. It overlooks the, the Hudson. People would pay a billion dollars for Grant's tomb. It's got, you know, Grant's body, Ulysses S. Grant's body is there, and we can, you know, we can subdivide and build a skyscraper. It's worth a billion dollars. There's only one little problem. You're not allowed to build on Grant's tomb. It's an historic preservation site, the same way Mar-a-Lago is an historic preservation site, you effing idiots. Do you know how stupid you are? You're so, it is unbelievable how ignorant Trump supporters are. And they buy Donald Trump's horseshit. You cannot subdivide Mar-a-Lago. But don't ask me. Ask the billionaires, the real billionaires, who live in Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, they're pretty strict about protecting the shoreline, especially since the value of the surrounding properties would plummet if Mar-a-Lago somehow ever got subdivided, there are actual billionaires who live around Mar-a-Lago. They don't want Mar-a-Lago subdivided and turned into McMansions. They don't, they don't want to look at that. And their investment in their home would be worthless because of these ugly McMansions that... Eric Trump, who pours concrete, would develop. Not going to happen in Palm Beach. There are people in Palm Beach who actually have money. And they would never allow Mar-a-Lago to be torn down. The same way you can't tear down Teddy Roosevelt's Oyster Bay birthplace or his home he was born in new york but you know hyde park franklin roosevelt's mansion in hyde park you can't buy it and subdivide yes in another world franklin roosevelt's home in hyde park would be worth three billion dollars if you could subdivide it it's beautiful you should go visit harvey jk speaks there all the time overlooks the hudson you can't subdivide Mar-a-Lago the same way you can't subdivide Hyde Park. God, there are some really stupid people. Uh, and they're all voting for Donald Trump. Just pure ignorance. Pure ignorance. So, the $30 million question how much is Mar-a-Lago worth? $30 million. And we know that because 
Trump signed the tax documents saying he knows it's worth $30 million. And who even knows how much of Mar-a-Lago he owns? A lot of people, it's a club. And there are members who pay a lot of money for lifetime memberships. So they're part owners of Mar-a-Lago. He doesn't own Mar-a-Lago, first of all. He barely owns it. He barely owns anything. So, he cannot borrow against Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lardo. No, he's Mar-a-Lado. Lardo. He's Lardo. Mar-a-Lago. He can't borrow against it because no lender would take it as collateral as collateral because they know they could never get more than $30 million from Mar-a-Lago if they're lucky. I'm sorry, but if you believe Mar-a-Lago is worth more than $30 million, you're ignorant. You're ignorant. Just because Trump says it's worth half a billion dollars doesn't make it worth half a billion dollars. Rudy Giuliani says Donald Trump owes him $2 million for the work he did challenging the 2020 presidential election results where Giuliani showed up hammered, drunk, his, his liver oozing vodka and whiskey. He literally showed up drunk because he's an alcoholic. Uh, he showed up ju- drunk before 60 judges and lost each case telling the court, quote, we have lots of theories about voter fraud, just no evidence at this time. When he went before 60 judges in the lead up to January 6, Rudy's no fool. He says one thing in front of a bank of microphones and another thing before a judge. Before every judge, when they ask for evidence of voter fraud, Rudy Giuliani said, quote, we have lots of theories about voter fraud, just no evidence at this time. And then he would waltz out of the courtroom, go before a bank of microphones and tell a completely different story. Well, he lost 60 cases. It sounds to me like Rudy owes Trump $2 million dollars. I think Rudy's got things mixed up. He lose 60 he lost 60 cases and he wants to collect 2 million dollars. In his latest bankruptcy filing, Rudy Giuliani estimates he owes as much as half a billion dollars in civil judgments against him. The half a billion dollars in civil judgments, then there's the legal fees back alimony, and of course, back taxes. He owes the IRS about $750,000, and he owes New York State $200,000. So he estimates all in, he's in hock to the tune of about half a billion dollars. And he turns 80 later this year. Rudy, just go to prison. Just go to, stop it already. Just stop. Just go die in prison. You're 80. Just go away and die in prison for some just peace and quiet. 
It can't be any prison can't be any worse than than what you're going through now. And they're doing wonderful things with toilet wine and toilet whiskey these days at Leavenworth. Just go to prison. Go to prison. Rudy, uh, there he is, was forced to declare bankruptcy late last year after a federal jury ordered him to pay two Georgia election workers $148 (laughs) I love it when horrible people just, just continue to spiral down the toilet. Nobody deserves this more than Rudy. Anyway, he was forced to declare bankruptcy late last year after a federal jury ordered him to pay two Georgia election workers $148 million in damages for falsely accusing them of stuffing ballots for Joe Biden. He almost got these two women killed. They, they had to go into hiding. Uh, the, the racially tinged death threats, the FBI had to step in. And when you think about uh, what he said on January 6th, today's trial by combat and go it, you know, egging on the January 6th goons. Uh, if you love this country, you should be enjoying Rudy Giuliani's pain. He deserves, he's a prosecutor. He knows supposedly right from wrong. And he used to be about justice. He deserves to go to prison. He almost ruined this country. He helped uh, make Hunter Biden's life miserable. Uh, a, a troubled son of, of Joe Biden. Uh, Rudy deserves everything that's coming to him. And uh, I welcome his pain. I welcome his emotional pain. Almost, almost killed our country on January 6th, Rudy Giuliani. Still might, by the way. Now, according to Donald Trump and the Republicans, the crisis at the border is tearing this country apart. The migrants, Trump and the Republicans insist, these migrants are bringing fentanyl into our country. Ron DeSantis says if they're carrying fentanyl, we should shoot to kill. That's a lie about the fentanyl. According to the federal government, fentanyl enters America through legal border crossings and is brought into this country by American citizens. These migrants are not smuggling fentanyl. We are told by the Republicans these migrants are terrorists. Another lie. Department of Homeland Security says they have yet to find one Islamic terrorist or any terrorist sneaking across our southern border. The northern border with Canada, a couple, but not the southern border. The truth doesn't matter. 
Republicans say we have to solve the border crisis because these migrants are poisoning our nation's blood. It's so bad, the border crisis, that Donald Trump had no choice this month but to kill the border bill. That's how crucial it is that we solve the migrant crisis. Donald Trump killed the border bill. Donald Trump killed the border bill. Why? Because the migrant crisis... uh, is way too important for Joe Biden to get any credit for solving it. Here is Republican Senator James Lankford. He's a Republican. Here he is in the well of the Senate. He was at Lankford, Senator Lankford, Republican, was in charge of negotiating the border bill with the House Republicans. And he soon found out that you're not allowed to come up with the border bill. Here is Republican Senator James Lankford, who Mitch McConnell put in charge of negotiating a border bill. Here's Republican James Lankford telling the world what I told you last November, that Donald Trump would never allow a border bill to get passed Otherwise, he will have nothing to run on. Some of them have been very clear with me. They have political differences with the bill. They say it's the wrong time to solve the problem or let the presidential election solve this problem. In fact, I had a popular commentator four weeks ago that I talked to that told me flat out, before they knew any of the contents of the bill, any of the content, none, nothing was out at that point, that told me flat out, if you try to move a bill that solves the border crisis during this presidential year, I will do whatever I can to destroy you. Because I do not want you to solve this during the presidential election. By the way, they have been faithful to their promise and have done everything they can to destroy me. Now, that is Republican Senator James Lankford. If you follow what's going on in Washington, D.C., it is accepted that Donald Trump has ordered the Republicans not to do anything about the border. We talked about Mitt Romney last week complaining that Donald Trump has given orders, do not solve the border crisis because I need something to run on. No border bill means no funding for Ukraine because the two have been bundled together going all the way back to last summer when President Biden came up with that gemstone of a political gambit. That was his idea. He he wanted to be the master of the Senate And he thought three steps ahead. And he thought, I want to fund Ukraine, but I know the Republicans are being paid by Putin. How do I get them to fund Ukraine? Why don't we bundle it with the border and we'll address some of the problems at the border. So now, because of that, Ukraine and the border have 
been inextricably linked. And the it's not looking good. Not looking good for Joe Biden on the border bill or funding for Ukraine. The, the European Union has come up with, I think, $56 billion for Zelensky. Uh, he's hanging in there. But America is doesn't look like we're going to be getting money to Ukraine anytime soon. The Senate is scheduled to vote on a $95 billion foreign aid bill Friday night. They've stripped out the border. But resistance from House Republicans is causing problems in the Senate. The House is controlling the Senate you keep, because uh, the adults are in the Senate. The House Republicans are children and the ha- one, one ha- the House of Representatives or the Senate, either one of them can stop everything, uh, including a war, by the way. Nancy Pelosi could have stopped. She became speaker in 2007. She could have defunded the war in Iraq. She voted against it. That's to her, her saving grace is she voted against authorizing the war in Iraq. But when she became speaker in 2007, she could have defunded the war. That's a whole other story. Uh, House Republicans are standing firm, claiming they will not vote for this foreign aid bill unless it also includes money for the border. But Donald Trump says no money for the border because he needs the border crisis as an issue to run on. So Republicans are accusing the Democrats of playing politics. That's what the Republicans are saying, that it's the Democrats who are playing politics with the border and Ukraine because Donald Trump said, (laughs) don't solve the border crisis because I need something to run on. Now, parliamentary rules are so Byzantine, the GOP can get away with this. They can twist words and lie and voters end up believing what they want to believe. The truth is, Republicans, this is, this is a fact. Republicans need to keep this imaginary migrant crisis going because migrants make perfect scapegoats. There is no crisis. You just need more immigration judges to process these people and we welcome them into America and send them where they're needed. You know, Kansas, Pittsburgh, the, the mayor of Pittsburgh is saying, we'll take the migrants. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a labor shortage. We need these people. I've been over this. There is no migrant crisis. We need these people our population is decreasing. Without more people living in America, there's nobody to pay into Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and keep our economy afloat. We need these people. They're a gift. There is no migrant crisis, you morons.
but Republicans need scapegoats. So they create this imaginary migrant crisis, and they lie about women and children, these desperate women and children. They call them drug dealers and terrorists. And these Republicans call themselves Christians. Well, by tying the border bill to Ukraine, the Republicans get to serve their true masters, Trump and Vladimir Putin. Because by tying it to the border, they have an excuse not to provide weapons to Ukraine. That's what this is. Because Republicans in the House are rooting for Putin. Rooting, tooting Putin. They don't want to solve the border bill because they need it. You know, the same way they needed abortion as an issue until they blew it. So the Supreme Court blew it for them and overturned Roe, and now they're stuck with abortion. That's all this is. That's all this is. And because Republicans have no intention of ever getting anything done, they use their time to feed on one another for power, to climb on top of one another and hurt each other. Mike Johnson, the speaker, is getting blamed essentially for doing what he was supposed to do. Act like he was interested in solving the border and getting money to Ukraine, but really just play out the play out the clock or the cock. (laughs) That's a whole other show. Um, He's playing out the clock uh, to stall and wait for another crisis to emerge so he could drop the border in Ukraine. And he's he's trying to distract by blaming Homeland Security Director Alejandro Mayorkas for the border crisis. The Republican-controlled House Homeland Security Committee voted to approve articles of impeachment to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas. It was taken to the floor for a vote And they lost. Republicans lost. Mayorkas was not impeached. There's not going to be a trial. And then Johnson introduced a standalone funding bill for Israel, which also lost because Democrats and some Republicans want Israel tied to Ukraine and Taiwan. So Johnson is discovering the honeymoon is over. And the question... Republicans are asking is, why did Johnson bring these two votes to the floor? He should know the count before they vote. And they say if he sees he's going to lose, he's supposed to withdraw the bills. That's the way modern day speakers of the House operate. It's kind of like the Hastert rule, named after Speaker of the House Dennis Hastert, who replaced Newt Gingrich. The Hastert rule is never introduce a bill unless you know the count, unless you're certain a majority of the members of your Republican caucus will vote for it. That's the Hastert rule. I mean, it's not 
like a law, but it's just what Republicans and the Republican speakers are supposed to follow. Uh, Dennis Hastert uh, retired from politics and just finished up a prison sentence for molesting some high school wrestlers he coached back before he was a, uh, a congressman, when he was a gym teacher, when he was a wrestling coach. Speaker Dennis Hastert uh, molested some uh, some boys on his wrestling team, and he went to prison for that. He was a wrestling coach, became a congressman, then a speaker, and then he went to prison for molesting his wrestlers. But enough about Jim Jordan. Why are we talking? What, did I who meant who brought up Jim Jordan? I, I digress. Go Google. People sometimes don't believe me. Just Google Speaker De- Republican Speaker Dennis Hastert. He was Speaker right after Newt Gingrich. Actually, there was a guy named Livingston. I think his name was Livingston. I think he was bri- Livingston. I think was briefly the Speaker, but he had a uh, quit because it turned out he was having an affair while impeaching Clinton for a blowjob. I think that was the story on Livingston. But Google the words Republican Speaker Dennis Hastert, wrestlers, molestation, prison, Jim Jordan, Ohio State. Just I shouldn't be laughing. It's a, it's a tragedy that Jim Jordan isn't being prosecuted. That's the tragedy. Anyway... So the Hastert rule, the Speaker Nancy Pelosi took the Hastert rule further and never introduced a bill unless she knew it would pass. And that meant no vote on Medicare for all. She said, I'm not going to introduce Medicare for all. It would never pass. But people like me said, take it to the floor anyway, Nancy, so we know which Democrats are against Medicare for all. Let's smoke them out. This was back in 2019 when she became speaker again, and in 2021 when progressives like me wanted to force the vote on Medicare for all. She wouldn't allow it because Pelosi doesn't support Medicare for all, and she wanted to provide political cover to the rest of her Democrats who also don't support Medicare for all. So we didn't get them on record saying, no, I'm a corporatist. I'd rather see Americans die for profit. So now Johnson is being accused by Republicans of not being able to count votes because he allowed Congress to vote on the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas and Israel, and he lost. But I say, and I mean this, good on you, Mr. Speaker. I I mean that. Hold the votes. Hold the votes. Even if you're going to lose, hold the votes. Force members of Congress to tell us where they stand. Smoke them out. Don't do what Nancy Pelosi did and provide political cover by never holding the vote. 
I think Mike Johnson did the right thing. Hold the votes. Now, the Freedom Caucus is a lot of things. But at least they want to restore regular order to the House of Representatives and force each member to tell us where they stand. So, Republicans aren't allowed to solve the border issue. Trump won't allow that. That's a fact. The border issue, that's mine. And you can't fix it. But there's always Alejandro Mayorkas. We'll always have Alejandro Mayorkas, the head of the Department of Homeland Security. Let's try to impeach him again. Blame it on Mayorkas. He's got a Latin-sounding name. Let's scapegoat him for the imaginary migrant crisis. This whole manufactured migrant crisis is about scapegoating. Republicans need migrants as scapegoats so voters don't blame the richest 1% for their economic immiseration. So why not scapegoat Mayorkas for the scapegoats? Find a scapegoat for the scapegoats. It's Alejandro Mayorkas. So Speaker Johnson says he's planning to hold another vote on impeaching Mayorkas. He's got something like a two-vote majority. Republicans can't afford to lose a single seat. And majority leader Steve Scalise has been out getting stem cell treatment for his cancer, but he's returning, which means Republicans have one more vote. So maybe this time around, they could impeach Mayorkas. Maybe, maybe. Republicans need every vote they can find. Now, I told the Republicans, they never listen, I said, you're making a big mistake getting rid of George Soros, not George Soros. What's his George Santos. It's George Santos. Uh, you're also making a, a big mistake trying to get rid of George Soros. But I told the Republicans, you're blowing it. Don't get rid of uh, George Santos. Now, why did they punish him? Why? Because what? He lied about everything? That's why they punished him? Your party is now a wholly owned and operated subsidiary of Donald J. Trump. George Santos should be his running mate. You needed his vote. And next Tuesday, New Yorkers go to the polls in a special election to pick George Santos' successor. And it looks... Like it's going to be close. And new polling this morning shows that district, the Santos district, is probably going to switch from red to blue. Another seat. He could have kept George Santos. Another seat going blue. Politico reports this morning that Democrat Tom Swazi who held Santos's seat but gave it up to run for governor. He lost. Tom Swazi is now running for the seat again, and current polls show him leading his Republican challenger, 
by four percentage points with 7% of the electorate undecided. That's, it's going to be close. It's going to be close. But uh, this is the slimmest majority Republicans have ever held in the House of Representatives. And if Swazi wins on Tuesday, it gets even slimmer. So that is an election to watch. It's very important. Speaker Johnson has accomplished nothing. Nothing. There is still no budget. And those continuing resolutions start expiring in about a month. And Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Act expired on December 31st. The House and Senate voted to kick the can down the road and extend Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Act until April. Both parties agree it needs to be updated. Under Section 702, right now, the NSA is allowed to spy without a search warrant on foreigners who travel to America. Foreign nationals who visit America, they talk to American citizens. They meet American citizens, which means the NSA right now under Section 702 is allowed to spy without a warrant on American citizens if they're talking to foreign nationals who are being spied on by the NSA. And what has happened over the years, this is uh, an outgrowth of the Patriot Act. Uh, It wasn't part of the Patriot Act, but this is to prevent terrorism. And what happened over the couple of years, it's been active is the FBI has swooped in and said, we'd like to look at the NSA's surveillance product. We'd like, we'd like without a warrant to check the emails, text messages, and phone calls that the NSA has intercepted to see if we can convict American citizens of any crimes separate from, uh, Terrorism, right? So Section 702 says the NSA can spy on foreign nationals who visit the United States, okay? And foreign nationals who visit the United States communicate with American citizens, and this is all without a warrant. Section 702 says the NSA can spy on American citizens if they're talking to foreign nationals. And the FBI has said, hey, since you're spying on these American citizens without a warrant, do you mind if we can look without a warrant to see if they're committing any domestic crimes? And hundreds and hundreds of thousands of electronic uh, emails, uh, text messages, and phone calls have been scoured by the FBI looking for domestic crimes and without a warrant. 
So obviously, everyone from the ACLU to the John Birch Society, they all want Section 702 rewritten. Mike Johnson wants to address Section 702, but he has a problem. Why? Because Republicans. See, there are two competing bills to solve Section 702. And there are two competing Republican committee chairmen fighting over jurisdiction. There's the head of the House Intelligence Committee, a Republican by the name of Mike Turner. He has his bill that addresses Section 702. While the head of the Judiciary Committee, the odious Jim Jordan, has his bill that addresses Section 702. Now, the House Intelligence Committee wants to protect the NSA. The House Intelligence Agency wants, the House Intelligence Committee wants to protect spy agencies and their ability to conduct warrantless electronic searches of foreign nationals and Americans without a warrant, without a warrant, without a warrant. But Jim Jordan, as we know, hates the intelligence community. He hates the deep, dark state because Section 702 was used to spy on some of Donald Trump's campaign officials back in 2016 to see what they were up to with Russia. Jordan says his Judiciary Committee has jurisdiction over Section 702 because this is about civil liberties. Turner says his intelligence committee has jurisdiction because this is about intelligence. Speaker Johnson considered bringing both bills, there are two bills, competing bills, to the floor, but was advised against it. He needs to get this resolved by April. He won't. There will be no budget, no resolution of Section 702. They'll just extend it. There will be no border bills, no funding for Ukraine, no funding for Israel, no funding for Taiwan, no budget. We are looking right now at the most unproductive Congress ever in American history. The latest figures show that since Republicans took control of the House a year ago, they have accomplished less than any Congress in American history. But hey, Republicans, you know, they hate government. So it's almost as if they're accomplishing what they were sent to Washington to do. Absolutely nothing. I mean, if they could shut this government down, they would chalk it up as a win. Lauren Boebert has slapped her husband, Jason Boebert, with a restraining order. The two are supposed to go before a judge in a Colorado courtroom later today, but now it's reported that Jason Boebert was never served. Jason Boebert has, however, been criminally charged with domestic violence. Police say early last month he was physically abusive 
with one of the Bobert's sons and then took out his rifle and pointed it at the boy because the boy, the son, was calling 911. The restraining order covers three of the couple's four children. Now, in the motion for the restraining order, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert said that while her son called 911, her ex-husband, Jason Boebert, held a gun to his own head and threatened to kill himself. Before getting elected to Congress, Lauren Boebert and her now ex-husband owned a restaurant called Shooters in Rifle, Colorado, that celebrated the Second Amendment with all the waitresses carrying sidearms. Kind of like it's a pun. They thought they were being clever. There's Hooters. This is Shooters. And the waitresses show off their sidearms. Lauren Boebert was elected as the Second Amendment candidate and got into several run-ins with Capitol Police over her refusal to stop carrying her gun through the halls of Congress. She loves guns, and so does Jason Boebert. So did Sarah Palin. And just like Sarah Palin... Members of her own family, the Palin family and the Bobert family, big lovers of guns. They have both had guns held to their, members of their families, sons have had guns held to their heads, uh, either threatening to shoot themselves or in Sarah Palin's son's case, begging his father to pull the trigger. Uh, there was an incident with Sarah Palin's son, and uh, the father put a gun to the the son's head, and the son said, pull the trigger. Thankfully, Palin's son and Bobert's husband didn't end up being two of the 50,000 Americans who die each year from gun violence. I get a lot of Trump supporters who say, 50,000 Uh, Americans die each year from gun violence, but half of that is suicide. What does that mean? Like, so it's, so it's only, so it's only 25,000 victims? Suicide? Isn't, you don't have victims of suicide? These guns and the people who worship them. Elise Stefanik is married to a gun lobbyist. Finally, we're, oh boy, all right, it's a little late. Finally, uh, I have inexplicably... I have quite a few Trump voters who listen to this podcast. They go to my website and they send me ferocious screeds. What shocks me is while they're 
grammatically impaired run-on sentences are peppered with vitriol and ignorance. Their attacks fall within the confines of polite political discourse. They spew fulsome attacks at they write to me, they go after Hunter Biden, Paul Pelosi, Michelle Obama. They call me a libtard, a Marxist. And while the hatred is palpable, it is somewhat harmless. Uh, they really don't go after, it's almost like a game. In their world, Hunter Biden, Paul Pelosi, Michelle Obama, libtards and Marxists, these are abstractions. Uh, these are people or ideas these Trump supporters can detest without any consequences. Uh, they will never meet these people or try to understand any of the concepts behind Marxism or classical liberalism. These Trump supporters who write to me seem to rely on Liptards, <laughs> Paul Pelosi, uh, uh, Marxists, uh, as punching bags that allow them to simulate intellectual discourse because they're incapable of actual intellectual discourse. But going after Paul Pelosi, Liptards, Marxists, it simulates. Uh, intellectual discourse. It's anything but. So I kind of enjoy my Trump trolls. And I, I, I mean this. Thank you. Uh, I get it. It's fun for you. And I find you polite. Actually, more polite to me than I am to you. So thank you. And I, I, I get I understand Trump trolls. I do. Uh, trolling is their raison d'etre. And for you Trump trolls, raison d'etre is a French term meaning buy a water pick. Since the words coming out of your mouth stink, at least spare us your breath. I don't know what it is, but every Trump supporter, again, if you've noticed, I tend to be meaner to the Trump trolls than they are to me. I don't know why. Uh, maybe because I love America. Uh, but they are relatively polite. It's almost as though these Trump trolls follow some kind of Marquis de Queensbury rules of engagement where they... They stick to these fake issues. They stick to what they think are facts. And I kind of like these people. I want to hate them. I do hate them. But, you know, but when I see that they took the time to commit to writing out what they think they know, I find them kind of cute. The same way the guards at Auschwitz were kind of cute in their Hugo Boss jumpsuits. Something cute. They're cute, but they're dangerous. So again, 
Thank you to my Trump trolls. You remind me of my children when they first began following current events. You know, like when they were in second grade and they had opinions and their opinions were based on what their friends told them or what they felt as opposed to what they knew. And it was adorable because unlike you Trump supporters, my children couldn't vote and didn't have ready access to firearms. Now, I can't respond to all the Trump supporters who listen to this show. But let me again (laughs) say I am honored and touched and grateful for any listeners I have. So I mean this from the bottom of my dark heart. Thank you. And thank you for your emails. I know you listen to this show to write me nasty letters. I try to, def- to decipher them. I understand you only listen to me so you control me because there's no point in supporting Donald Trump unless you can upset a snowflake like me. I get it. It's all about liberal tears. I get that. And it's all about the fight. You like the fights. You know, it's fun, right? It's fun. So, uh, it's, it's nice to have fun, but there are serious problems that need to be addressed. Climate change, climate catastrophe, for-profit health care, the eviction crisis, homelessness. Uh, we need more. I mean, there are, so it's nice to have fun. It's fun. Uh, I want to just say one thing to the Trump supporters who listen. And I'm not trying to be cruel here. Just vicious, but not cruel. I want you to know that you are ignorant. You don't read. Now, I know a lot of people have dyslexia and they can't read, but you don't listen to books on tape. Uh, instead, you've been inoculated by Donald Trump and the Republican Party. You've been inoculated from feeling any doubt about your literacy, any doubt about your lack of education. You've been inoculated by con artists who tell you not to trust the mainstream media, academia, or any other educational institution, except maybe Prager U. Dennis Prager, barely, I don't even think he has a master's. What they do, the way they con you, is tell you to do your own research. And that's a false promise of democratizing knowledge. Everything is up for debate, they tell you. But we do not vote on reality or evidence. So to my Trump trolls, you are reading the wrong books, the wrong magazines, the wrong websites, listening to the wrong people, or whoever claims to be teaching you. There's a reason we have standardized tests. In fact, standardized tests are coming back. And you Trump supporters, you know this. You fail standardized tests. And deep in the back of 
the cheese you call a brain, you know that you're lacking. You know that. You know that. So you turn to Trump because he makes it okay to be stupid. And you find that liberating. And his surrogates cater to your subconscious insecurities by conning you into thinking the literate, the educated, the people who know that the Lancet, the New York Times, the Economist, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, the Guardian, while they don't always get things right, they are still the gold standard for mining the truth. Trump supporters are ignorant because they don't know what to read or who to listen to. Trump supporters prefer being told what they want to hear as opposed to what is the truth. And that's how Trump supporters are convinced into voting against their own self-interest. A vote for the Republican Party, a vote for Trump, is a vote for one thing and one thing only, tax cuts for the richest 1%. That's it. That's all Trump is. That's all he ever accomplished. See the $8 trillion debt he tacked on. That was cutting taxes for the wealthy. That's all the Republican Party stands for. Cutting taxes for the wealthy. And they will say and do anything to convince the ignorant to vote for them so they can then go and cut taxes for the wealthy. What has Mike Johnson accomplished? What have the Republicans accomplished since they took the House? Nothing other than preserving Donald Trump's tax cuts for the richest 1%. They do this by wrapping their political claptrap in bigotry and misogyny. So you Trump trolls, you Trump voters, uh, how can I put this? Uh, you ignorami. Uh, you're encouraged through misogyny, bigotry. Uh, that encourage, encourages you to hate the federal government. So much so that you support cutting taxes for the wealthy because you see it as an act of cruelty to all the scapegoats you've been trained to hate. And it is an act of cruelty. And that's why you support it. Because it, when we cut taxes for the wealthy, there's less money for the people who need it. And that's cruel. It's cruel to the people who need that money. People like you, the Trump supporters, you need that money. Now, I have repeatedly on this show gone over the economic numbers. This economy right now, by all yardsticks, 
is doing better under Joe Biden than it did under Trump and every president who came before Joe Biden. Joe Biden, this Biden economy is the most successful economy any president has had. More jobs created than any president in history. The yardsticks used to measure our economy are inflation, job growth, wage growth, and the growth of the economy. Now, let me say up front, I'm not a cheerleader for capitalism or the system. Half this country can't come up with $500 for a medical emergency. But that's a different yardstick. That's the tragedy of America. But I'm not talking about the tragedy of America. I'm talking about the game of politics. And politics isn't about the entire country. We have 350 million Americans, but not everyone votes. Children can't vote. Among eligible voters, it swings anywhere between 40 to 60%. We get 40 to 60% of eligible voters who end up casting a ballot on election day. It depends on who's running. So we have two Americas. We have the rich and the poor. And there's also two other Americas. There's those who vote and those who don't vote. And this discussion is about those who vote. And that's the game. And that game follows certain rules. Okay? The game of politics, the game of presidential politics, the game of winning back the House, winning the Senate. If you're president, you have to create jobs. This is, these, this is the rule of the game. I didn't write the rule of the game. If I were writing the rules of the game, it would be about ending hunger, providing free health care, free tuition at all public universities, forgiving student debt, free food for those who need it, free housing for those who need it. That, that, that would be the rules of my game. But this is the game that's played in Washington. And these are the rules. If you're president, you have to create jobs, grow the economy, bring down inflation while bringing up wages, and not get us into an unpopular war. An unpopular war. You do know that Joe Biden has won this game. Better than any president who's come before him. He's won, he has won this game. Uh, now, a lot of you Republicans like to say, well, he, he brought us war. Uh, I don't mean to trivialize Gaza, Ukraine, the Houthis, Yemen. But in terms of the game, we are not at war. I know that American soldiers just have been dying in the Middle East. But we are not in a war. We are not in an unpopular war. 
we are providing weapons, we're fighting proxy wars, but he is winning the game of not putting America into an unpopular war. I keep reading, he got us into Ukraine and he got us into Israel. Uh, horrible situations, but we're not at war in Ukraine and we're not at war in the Middle East. We're fighting a little with Iran, but we're not in a war. Now, a lot of Trump supporters write to me and say, quote, uh, I can't make ends meet with Biden as president. And I, and I hate to be cruel here. They say, this economy sucks. Uh, I, I was doing better under Trump. The, the economy sucks under Biden. And I write back, well, what about these numbers? Well, I ain't feeling it. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, people are falling through the cracks. That is the tragedy of America. Uh, but if you're a Trump voter, and I mean this, if you're a Trump voter and you blame Biden because you can't make ends meet, it's not Biden, it's you. Take a look in the mirror. Nobody wants to be around you. You're insufferable. If you have a job, your coworkers are distancing themselves. They might not tell you that because they may be afraid of you, but they're just going, okay, they're just tiptoeing away. That's why your wages have stagnated. That's why you're being passed up for promotions. The black lesbian isn't moving ahead at the office because she's a black lesbian. That's just your excuse for your own complete and utter lack of competency. Trump has made you stupid and insufferable. That's why this economy isn't working for you. You know, I'm going to be, you know, if this were a real show, if this were a real business and I had a staff, if this were a real honest-to-goodness company, and I had a MAGA imbecile working for my company, and, and I knew you were MAGA, I would never give you a promotion. Every mistake you made would be part of, yes, confirmation bias that all Trump supporters are stupid, because they are. They're ignorant. And I wouldn't want you around. So if you voted for Trump, the reason you're falling through the cracks right now is because you suck at everything, especially at being a human being. You're inconsiderate, intellectually lazy, bereft of critical thinking and morality. You don't know how to love or respect others. You choose guns over logic. Who in their right mind would hire you or lend you money for a business? 
the economy is growing, but you're not. It's you, not Biden. Now, there are some of my listeners who say I'm being rough on Trump supporters. And it's really just a difference of opinion. No. When someone gets behind the wheel of a car with a blood alcohol level of 0.04%, he and I don't have a difference of opinion on how to drive. I'm not going to argue the rules of the road with someone in the throes of blood alcohol poisoning. You're going to get us all killed. But with Trump supporters, instead of alcohol, it's rage. These are rageaholics with blood rage poisoning. They are poisoned by rage. Rage, like alcohol, is addictive. It, you know, it, rage produces hormones. It revs up the body. It's a narcotic. It's addictive. And these Trump supporters are living for the fight. It's what makes them feel alive. Thanksgiving, right? We've learned to ignore them. At Thanksgiving. And what do they do? They wither in the corner, eating too much and screaming at the television. That's what they do. If we ignore them, they just stuff their mouth with bad food and scream at the television. There are more of us than there are of them. And it's not a difference of opinion. The same way facts are not subject to debate. MAGA is not subject to debate. If you support Trump, there's nothing to discuss. You don't read. If you're dyslexic, you don't listen to books on tape. You're willfully uneducated. And you're angry that you don't read, that you don't listen to books on tape. You're angry that you don't know the difference between facts and propaganda. You're consumed with rage and you lack self-reflection. And because you lack self-reflection, you have to blame others for the fact that nobody wants to love or hire you. Who loves you? When's the last time you had sex? Nobody loves you for the same reason nobody wants to hire you or give you a promotion. Nobody loves you for the same reason you're being marginalized at work. Because you're consumed with hatred for yourself and others. It's not Biden. It's not the Democrats it's not the migrants, the Marxists, the Arabs, the Muslims, the Jews, the globalists, or the libtards. It's you. But I love you Trump supporters anyway. Keep sending me those emails. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Thank you so much for sticking with me. Uh... We had a late start today. I don't know who's here. I don't know if Bob, it, it was such a late start, but thank you to Bob uh, if he's here. And I will be back Saturday.
please share this with your friends. That's the best way to help me. Like this episode so I remain in your feed. Please subscribe to my newsletter and subscribe to this channel. Thank you so much for listening. 